Hey there, Omaha. Uh, welcome into Restaurant Hoppin'. We are diving back into the world of coffee on this week's episode. I have with me the owner of Archetype Coffee, Isaiah Sheesh. Isaiah, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I, the very first thing I want to do, and I like to do this with a lot of guests, is there are just so many options for coffee in Omaha. There are a lot of different local roasters. Obviously, you talk about some of the national brands and everything. But when you look at Archetype, what do you think, like, what's your unique selling proposition? What is it that Archetype does that you think really makes you guys stand out? Um, that's a tough question. Uh, I, I'd say this is a very tough question. I'm just going to lead <laughs> off with the, lead off with a rough one. Yeah, I know. Sorry. It's like how to be politically correct. Uh, how to not be like, whoa, we're the most excellent roaster. No, um, <laughs> go ahead. Brag away, man. No, no, no. I mean, it is a, that is a very tough question. I mean, I think, uh, intentionality is a huge deal for us. So like where we are sourcing coffee, you know, our goal is always, to not just promote archetype, but, you know, to promote those producers that are doing um, an excellent job in growing, producing um, their coffees. And so, you know, we can trace back every one of our coffees back to a specific farmer. So we're not just going to the big importers that are, you know, supplying coffee all over the world, but we're going to more like the little, you know, boutique importers that are, we can go back to a specific farm. So it's not just a country, it's not just a region, but like a particular farmer that has a name and we can make sure that that name is on our bag. So, you know, obviously excellence is what we're always trying to promote and push. Um, but also I think more than that is just traceability and um, yeah, taking it back to those farms. So I, yeah. Maybe this is going to be a bad analogy, but but tell me if I'm on kind of the right track here. Like sure. what you guys do in identifying your coffee beans is kind of like if someone is searching for tacos, they can go to Taco Bell and get like the national brand or whatever. You guys are going to like that little mom and pop place. It's just like a corner on the <laughs> corner. It doesn't even have like a sign hung up necessarily, but they have the greatest tacos. And it's like, if you know, you know, sure. It, am I kind of along the right lines there? Yeah. I mean, I've never been, uh, yeah. And then <laughs> never been compared to tacos, I've never been compared to tacos <laughs> or I've never compared coffee to tacos, but yeah, no, that is definitely a great analogy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, you have to deep dive to find these farms, uh, in these countries. And it is, uh, definitely a labor of love, just like finding the perfect taco. You know what I mean? Like you've got to try how many places <laughs> before you find that perfect taco. It's kind of the same way, you know, with us. Now that we've got through my awkward analogy, um, <laughs> I, I definitely want to get back into how you guys identify those places, but I think it's really important for people to understand where you come from as well. And I want to start with like, you know, your coffee, man. Like I, if we were talking about this a little bit off the mics, but I, as I kind of got into my research, I didn't even know that the thing, this thing called the U S barista championships existed. Yeah. And, and there are many levels of this yeah. that, as you were just talking about, but you've been competing in this thing since 2008, you actually placed fifth in 2020. Yeah. So like, that's a really big deal. Can you kind of peel back the curtain a little <laughs> bit and let people know? Like, that's a that's a pretty big honor, oh, right? thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to finish fifth in the U.S. in anything, you know. It, right, yeah. In anything, I think, is a pretty big deal. Um, yeah, so it's the United States Barista Championship is this weird subculture uh, of coffee that where basically, you know, you're competing against the top of the top in the U.S. trying to represent your company. So you basically have – 
15 minutes, you're serving four sensory judges, you have two technical judge and a head judge. You're serving the sensory judges all a single espresso, a single milk drink, and then you create this signature beverage, and they judge you on coffee knowledge, bar management, waste, taste, all of these things. So it's it's a really intense uh, competition, um, yeah, that I just kind of dove into 2008 yeah a long time ago so I'm kind of like one of the old dogs that's still competing trying to trying to win one so what have you learned through the competitions throughout the years um it's it's a tricky competition because people always think it's like who has the best presentation and you'll see some competitors that have an incredible presentation but they you know they miss the mark they don't make top six but you're like that was the most incredible thing I've ever seen um, over the years, you just realize like there is a scorecard that they're judging you off of. And it's like, how do you get those points? And I think that was one of the hardest things for me to figure out because it was always seeing those inspiring presentations. It's like, I want to present like that. You know what I mean? That's what I want to showcase. And so, you know, then the next year you come out with a really cool presentation and you still miss the mark. And so um, when I was doing the build out of the first archetype, I took a year off of competing because I knew I couldn't compete. And you know, um, do the build out as well at the same time, because it's just so much stress and so much pressure and a lot of money to compete. So I took a year off to judge. And in that one year of judging, I learned more than those previous like three or four years that I competed, you know, like I I was doing a great job, but I was not playing the same game that the top level competitors were, were playing. And so that like completely transformed the way that I approached competition from then on out, you know? So mm-hmm. it was a really in- incredible learning experience. That's awesome. All right. Getting into archetype a little bit, I think in addition to what you talked about at the top of the podcast about what makes it special, what sets it apart, I really think that archetype, at least from the outside looking in, seems to have a pretty special ethos. I think you guys have a a really unique culture and approach to coffee that I think is something that's very welcome, especially in that space. And um, on you guys' website, there's actually a quote that says, coffee is about the community it creates. How in your mind does coffee create community? Coffee is just one of those um, unique beverages that, you know, is consumed all over the world, you know, and there. In America, I would say there's not a ton of rituals that people have, but I think coffee is still one of those rituals. You wake up, you drink it, you know, like that's like the first thing that starts your day. And so for me, just being a barista for so long, you understand that that's, you're setting up someone's day, you know, like this is the first interaction that most people will have, you know what I mean, with other humans, except for maybe their family when they wake up. And so it's like, Yes, I want to be known as producing the best product, the best coffee, but even more than that, man, you're setting up someone's day to be either a good thing or a bad thing. So whether that's making them the best drink or whether it's, you know, like, hey, good morning, how's it going? You know, starting their day off on a positive note, it's like, you know, coffee more than just a drink is part of being a community. So, you know, part of my approach to coffee was always like connecting people too, you know? So like if you're at the bar, I'll be like, Oh, Hey, yeah, this is Dan, you know, Bill. Yeah. Bill does this. Oh man, you guys should totally, you know what I mean? Just introducing and connecting people, you know, and it's just archetype more than the coffee has become just an incredible community of connecting people in different walks of life. And, um, yeah, it's just fun to watch and see, you know, that grow. And so, I mean, it's just been a huge part of what we do. It's not just about the coffee, but it really is about community and connecting people. And 
Um, yeah. I find that first thought that you brought up fascinating that like, and I don't know why I'd never thought about this before, but really you guys are kind of like introducing people to the day. And you know, there's, yeah. there's the famous saying like, you know, you can wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you know, that's kind of facetious or whatever, but like getting coffee is one of your first interactions that really yeah. can set the whole tone. Like yeah. if you have a bad experience, you just got, <laughs> you just get that dark cloud over your head yeah. and you're going into work and you're mad. Yeah. And then, you know, there's traffic and annoyed, like everything just piles up. But if you have a good experience, you kind of go into the day with just, you know, a lighter attitude. You're happier. Absolutely. Obviously you understand the importance of that. How do you get that message to your employees? So every one of them understands like you are the front facing part of this company and you know, we need you to, to be that great interaction to someone's day. Yeah. I mean, part of it's just, uh, teaching kind of like the psychology of, of that, you know, when a customer comes in, you know, one thing that you have to read is like, does this customer want to talk to you? Or does this customer not want to talk to you? You know what I mean? Like it's the Uber you, driver conundrum. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you're a smiley guy, you know what I mean? You come in, you're bright. So it's like, Oh, I bet you this guy wants to have a conversation. So it's like, Hey, and you can kind of you know, fish that out like, Hey, good morning. How are you? And you know how they answer that question of whether to take the next step or just give them their drink and get them out. You know what I mean? Like right. sometimes that's like the best thing you can do for a person is like, this person doesn't want to talk. They're coming to get their caffeine and get them out of here. And as quickly and efficiently as you can do that is going to set their day up right where the next person it's like, Hey, I want you to ask me like how my day was or like, Hey, what's going on this weekend. And so it's just really working with your employees to understand the differences between those and how to read the room, which I think is a great thing to learn for anyone in any circumstance, you know, um, whether you're in Omaha, Nebraska, or you're across the world in a different country. But yeah, it's just a, one of those things that you have to teach and you kind of have to continue to revisit over and over again, just so that everyone on your staff is kind of like on the same point. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's an incredible thing. I didn't really learn that until, when I was leaving one of the first shops that I've worked at for quite a while, you know, the people would be like, you, you, you set up my day every day. And like, I had no idea. I mean, like you have, you know, from a one minute interaction to maybe a five minute interaction with his people. And you just didn't realize how much you impacted them. Like some of the most quiet people that I really didn't have too much engagement with would be like, you made my day like for this many years. And I'm like, holy crap. Like I had no idea that, you know, and it was just being kind, you know, over and over and over and over again. You know, you, that might be one once a week. It might be three to five times a week over five years. That's a lot of engagement with a human, you know what I mean, in small, small bites that definitely add up to a positive thing. So just really, you know, encouraging the breezes to understand, you know, what sort of impact you can have just in a very small, seemingly meaningless interaction might mean the world to someone, you know, that, yeah, just the psychology behind everything is yeah. so, so fun to think about. Um, including, I think this next question, I think for a lot of people, and th this was me probably four or five years ago before I seriously started dating my wife, who is a coffee fanatic. <laughs> I, I, I was not really much of a coffee person. And, you know, when people would go get like specialty coffee drinks, they're like, Oh, we got this roast from Columbia and everything. I was like, okay, that's kind of pretentious. Like, Come on, we don't we don't need to do that. But I've I've seen that's not really the case. That actually that's not the case at all. And I and I understand that now. But there's kind of that, just that perception I think from the general public it, that if you're not like a hardcore coffee drinker, then you know you're just getting it from black from Hy-Vee or maybe you don't drink coffee at all. And you kind of see 
these people who take like 45 seconds to order their coffee, you know, in line or something. And you're just like, okay, come on. How at Archetype do you try and cut through that perception and show people that coffee doesn't have to be about snobbery, but it can just be about great service and great product? Yeah, it was, I mean, that was a steep learning curve for me just because uh, from some of the coffee shops that I worked at before were very just, you know, it's all about the coffee. You know what I mean? It's very, I don't even know, like, I don't want to say Nazi, but like, it was just like about the coffee. It wasn't about anything else. It was about talking about this farm, talking about the process, talking about how we brewed it, talking about all those parameters and just realize, you know, that person really just wanted a cup of coffee. They're going to put cream and sugar in it. And so, you know I mean? They didn't want to know the story. And so when I moved to Omaha, you know, for a second, I was like, I'm just going to do 12 ounces. is going to be the largest size that I have. And I was like, that's it. You know what I mean? Because, like, coffee was not really meant to be consumed in 16, 20 ounce, 32 ounce, you know, I mean, whatever you want. 64 ounce, uh-huh. like big gulp coffee, you know. Um, but my wife's like, you're in the Midwest. You can't do that. And I was like, why not? And she's like, you people want, you are going to have to do what they want. And so I was just like it was really hard for me to like wrap my mind around that. But then what I realized is like, if they're coming to archetype over and over and over again, and they might put two, three, five, five sugars and cream in it. And that's like their favorite thing. And they're not going anywhere else. Then I've won. You know what I mean? Like we, we've won a customer. We've won uh, someone that's loyal to us. And it's like, that's making their day better. And they're supporting the cause just as much as the person that wants to know exactly where that coffee came from, how it was processed, how it was brewed, all those parameters. And so I just really had to change my mindset of like, it's just give the person what they want. You know what what I mean? Like we can still do all of our due diligence of sourcing and roasting and brewing and all of those, those things. And it still does not change, change it at the very end of like, if they put cream in it, or they drink it black. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? As long as we're we're doing our part and we're giving the awesome customer service, then we've won. You know, so I just really had to change that mindset of like, if that person's gonna come three times a week and still put cream and sugar in it, that's still a win. It doesn't matter. They're you know what I mean? And they go down the street and they're like, Ooh, that coffee is not as good as theirs. I don't know why, but I just know that it is better. Then in my book, that's a win, you know, and so um, then you have those special events where like, you know, I showcase my competition coffee and then maybe that person that's always put cream and sugar in it finally tries that coffee black and they're like, whoa, I've never experienced anything like that. You know, I mean, then we give those other opportunities too. It, they may still put cream and sugar at, it at the end of the day, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's just trying to take out the pretension and just like meet people where they are and, you know, set up an atmosphere. If they want to ask questions, they can, but if they don't, like, who cares? You know what I mean? We're going (laughs) to, we're going to have the same good time over that same cream and sugar. You know what I mean? And so it just took for me, I think maturing as a human, you know, just to be like, we all win if we're all supporting the same cause and that's selling coffee and paying farmers what they deserve. You know, like they're playing just as big as a part as the person that, you know, wants to know every last single detail, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And clearly you're very passionate about coffee and you've learned a lot along this journey throughout the years. So I want to go back to the very beginning. I know that you, you kind of started your coffee career at Shades of Brown Coffee and Art in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but what originally like got you into coffee? How, how did you know that that was something special for you? Honestly, I mean, I'm, 
I started drinking coffee when I was like six, you know. Really? Yeah, that five, young. Five or six. Yeah, my it's funny because my dad's side of the family, they're like the sweet tea people, you know what I mean? Like where like a spoon stands up in it because it's so freaking sweet, you know. And then my mom's side of the family just drank coffee, you know. So you had a pot of coffee for breakfast, and then after dinner you had a pot of coffee. And so grandma, since, you know, my brother didn't drink coffee, my dad and mom didn't drink coffee, I think grandma, you know, was like, we're going to make sure Isaiah drinks coffee. And so from a little kid, she'd give me like cream and sugar and the coffee. And, you know, so I started that young. And then even through like high school, my mom would buy me like those like Maxwell House, like packets of like cappuccino with like Irish cream or mocha or whatever. And so... Um, I just always drank coffee, and then um, I had a friend that was going to open Shades of Brown, and she asked if I wanted to come help and, and work there. And so um, when I started, I just kind of fell in love. And so I worked, you know, there for three years, and I left and started working for a place called Double Shot Coffee. And their fame was they were sued by Starbucks over the name and ended up winning <laughs> the lawsuit, which is pretty incredible. And so um, he had just asked, you know, like, Hey, what, what do you want to do in coffee? And I was like, well, I want to, you know, um, Barista magazine had come out with these little trading cards, like baseball cards that would put like really? the baristas rank. Yeah. And I was like, man, I want to compete. I want to get ranked or whatever. And so the next year he signed me up and man, it was just like a slippery slope there. Then I went to Columbia on a buying trip and then like, I just slid further down of like, just falling in love with the whole industry, you know, um, like once, once I visited a farm, it was just like, I knew that's kind of what I wanted to do. When did you decide to open your own shop? Cause it's one thing to work for other people. It's, it's true. a whole nother to, yeah. and you, obviously you've opened multiple locations now, but yeah. even just doing that first one, how did you come to that decision? So, um, you know, I'd competed and kind of worked my way up in the competition world. And then when I was in Milwaukee, um, I worked for a company called Anodyne and they're a pretty big company. And I was their wholesale trainer, um, worked as a barista. And so um, my wife, she w- got her job at UNMC as a neuropsychologist. And so that's why we moved here. And I was just kind of at that point in my career of like, I'm not just a barista. You know what I mean? Like I've <laughs> I'm kind of a coffee professional. Like, it's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to try to follow your dreams or what you wanted to do? Or are you just going to change careers again? And so um, that last year that I was in Milwaukee, I took a business writing course. It was kind of like one of those crash, you know, crash course just for a couple of weeks and tense. And so I started working on, on a business plan. And so when I got to Omaha, I was like, I'm going to at least try to see what happens. And so I came up with a business plan and wrote it and then just started trying to figure it all out. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you and your wife ended up here because her job, she yeah. she wanted to come here and everything. But, you know, when people think about, like, the coffee meccas and, like, someone who's hungry, you know, <laughs> for coffee, like, their first thought's probably not going to Omaha and Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. It's probably going to one of the coasts, specifically, the, specifically the West Coast. Was there ever part of you, I mean, I'm sure you were excited for the opportunity to be here, but was there ever part of you that was just like, man, I wonder, you know, what what life you know, would be like as you're, you know, opening archetype, you're just like, man, I wish I was on the coast. Is there any part of that or were you, no. were you all in here? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, I think Omaha was a perfect starting ground. You know, it, it's, it's a great mid-sized city. Um, and it's definitely a place where the risk is much lower than going to those big cities. You know, I had an opportunity, I had uh, a company that wanted me to go to Chicago and open a training lab and, um, one of their locations there. And I was like, why would you do that? You know, like it's the market saturated. Um, rent is insanely expensive. You know, 
what separates you from all the other companies, you know? And it was kind of the same way with, uh, you know, opening a coffee shop for myself. I, this is a much safer place to test the waters, I think, than just going to a big city. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there's always someone better than you. No matter what, what you're doing, there's always someone that is, you know, going to be better. And so... For me, it was just like a safer place to to try it out. Can I be successful at this or not? You know, and can I prove it? You know that it, it can be successful. And so, no, I'm very grateful that we started here and we're able to jump in. Yeah. How did you settle on the name? That's so, hard because obviously that's oh, a, dude, that's, that's a pr- archetype is a bold claim to it make is. for like a first time coffee shop. Obviously, it it's worked out and you are confident in it. But how did you, you how did you come to that? Um, yeah, n- I mean, I used to play a lot of music. Naming a band is like one of the worst things ever. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> we could be sitting in here and we, we could probably like spit out like 10, 20 names, and most of them are probably terrible. One might be okay, you know what I mean? As uh, Chris, Chris Pratt's band on Parks and Rec can attest to, they changed their name 15 times. Well, you know, and a lot of it, it's like the band almost makes the name. You know what I mean? Like yes. it could be the worst. You, you know, you can might think of your favorite band, and it might be a terrible name, but the band's amazing, you know? And so that's it's hard. It's like, well, you're naming a business. Um, and so for me, I wanted something that, that meant something, uh, you know, and so... I was just going through like the thesaurus and, you know, I'd look up a name and I'd be like monogram. That's kind of a cool name. And then, then you look at, well, there's already a monogram. Great. Uh, now what's the next name? You know, like anthology, that's kind of a cool word. Like, and so I was just doing that and searching and searching and searching. And, um, archetype is the original of something that all things model themselves after. And so, you know, one of my goals is like, can we be a business that other businesses look at and want to model themselves after, you know? So, I mean, like, can we make, can we do business in such a way that it's an inspiration to others? And so that, that was kind of like the goal, you know what I mean? So not just from the product, but like our, our ethos and like how we treat our employees, how we treat our community, how we treat our farmers, like, can we be a catalyst for inspiring others? And so, um, that's kind of the goal and it is a very, yeah, the names <laughs> hopefully we can live up to the name it, it's it's the type of name where if you don't live up to it it looks really bad but if yeah. you do it's <laughs> exactly. just like yeah that that place knows what they're doing yeah. and i would put you in that latter oh, bucket there thanks we try how did you decide that because the original location was at blackstone yeah or in blackstone and, and it still is how did you decide that that was the right space to open up your first shop um that's not the first space that I really wanted. Uh, so I'd never been to Omaha um, before my wife's interview. You know, I mean, it just like I said, it wasn't, wasn't on my bucket list. Um, I didn't really know anyone here, and so there was no reason for me to ever visit. And so when I moved here, the first place that I really liked, I thought 13th Street was super cool. I really liked Venton Street. That was really neat, you know, um, down by the ballpark. just kind of a cool area, you know, but... Um, so just started driving around. The first place that I actually tried to open a spot was the Dundee Double Shot. Oh, um, yeah. I love that building, like a little mid-century modern building, a little patio. And for me, it was just like, that's a small risk. It's a small space. You know what I mean? Like, if it succeeds, it's awesome. And if it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to have to sink a ton of money into it. And so I, that was like the first place that I tried to you know, take over. It just didn't work out. The guy that was selling it, you know, um, had asked for too much money. I think he thought I was just a dumb kid that didn't know anything. And so I looked at the numbers. I was like, man, this is not worth this much, you know? So then, um, I was just looking around and I saw, um, 
Jay Lund had, um, there was another space down Farnham, a little bit further east of where we are now, that he showed me it was an old bank, and I, I kind of looked at the space, and it just didn't feel right, it wasn't good, he's like, well, you know, hey, we have another spot that we're, you know, kind of wanting to put a coffee shop in, we don't really, we have another girl that's looking at it that, you know, wants to put a coffee shop in, but I don't know if it's going to work, do you want to see the space, so I went and looked at Sullivan's, and man, at that point, like, that place was in rough condition, you know, I mean, like the floors sunk down in the middle, you know what I mean? Like back where the bar was, you could see in the basement, you know, like green carpet. It was ugly. It was hideous um, <laughs> at the point at that, at that time, you know, and um, he just asked, you know, like, what do you think? And so um, honestly, it just, it wasn't that I was in love with Blackstone. It's just like that building it just all kind of worked. So mm-hmm. yeah, kind of crazy. One of the things that I've learned time and time again doing this show and, and talking to different restaurateurs and, and business owners now is it it is a very different thing to be a chef or be great at cooking and open your own restaurant oh, sure because it's not all about the food no. anymore so i assume it's the same thing with coffee you obviously <laughs> knew coffee extremely well yeah. when you opened your first archetype yeah. location you were a fantastic barista but it's another thing to be a business yeah. owner and i think um I found another article where you even said you might have been a little naive as what it meant to be a business owner. Can you kind (laughs) of go into that a little bit more and and explain what you mean by that? Uh, Yeah. Um, If I took off my mask, you'd see some gray hairs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I hope it's wisdom. I don't know. Definitely wisdom. If you uh, took my, if you saw my picture before I opened and now, you know, seven years later, I've definitely aged a bit, uh, maybe a little faster than others have. Um, But no, um, I was definitely naive. You know, I went to school to be a youth pastor. That's what I went to school for. And so, I mean, I had zero business background, you know, I have people background, you know, I like people. Um, I played in bands, you know, um, I was always a hard worker, you know, growing up in Indiana and kind of, you know, putting up hay in the summer and things like that. But that doesn't really give you the ins and outs of, you know, what's a, you know, return on investment, what's an ROI, what's, you know, what all those acronyms that I had to learn very quickly that the bank was asking me that I'm like, I have zero idea. So yeah, man, I was very naive of what it meant to run a business. Uh, and so I just kind of got thrown in the thick of it and it was kind of sink or swim. So it's kind of weird because it's, I'm passionate about coffee. I'm passionate about people. I was not passionate about running a business, you know, and that you, you learn real quick that when you open a business, like what you really want to do and what you end up doing is very different. And, um, I've, I'm still not back to exactly what I doing, what I want to do all the time. You know, I still, you know, do some bookkeeping and, and payroll and things like that. But yeah, it's, you find that you're, you're the maintenance man, you're the bookkeeper, you're, um, your HR, you're all of those things. It's like, all I really wanted to do was make incredible coffee, serve people, build community, you know, and then it's like, now I've got to do all of that, you know? So yeah, that's, that's where that naivete came from was not really understanding what it meant to own a business and, um, what it took to not just, own it, but run it and make it sustainable and make it profitable. Eventually, you know, those, it came with a lot of, a lot of scars and, (laughs) you know, taking my licks, but yeah, we're, here we are. Yeah. And and I think that's probably the case for just about any first time business owner is there's all kinds of things that they don't understand that they're going to have to deal with, or they run into and they just don't know how to deal with. And kind of the, the difference between whether that business dies in six months or whether it 
goes on to be successful and open multiple locations is how the person, how the business owner and their team responds yeah. in those situations. So when you ran into all these things that you weren't familiar with or you didn't necessarily understand, how did you approach that? Like what kind of crash course did you give yourself to where <laughs> maybe you don't know what return on investment sure. is or you don't know how to, you know, hire you know, an entire team of employees sure. and stuff, but now you have to do it. So how do you figure that out on the fly? Google. No. <laughs> <laughs> Google uh, is a great saver. Oh man. YouTube. Um, yeah. I mean, thankfully uh, I have a love hate relationship with technology and the internet, but I mean, you can learn almost anything at any time of the day. And so, I mean, honestly, anytime that I was in a meeting and I didn't understand something, and I didn't feel like it was the right time to ask or the right time to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I just scribble it down on a piece of paper. And as soon as I would leave the meeting, man, I'd just get on my phone and like start Googling stuff and figure it out. So, I mean, it, it was seriously just taking myself on a crash course. Or if I knew someone, you know, in my past, you know, that I could just call. Um, there are a lot of people relationships that I'd built in Tulsa, you know, that were running successful, you know, restaurants or bars. Um, and there are a couple of people that I would just, they were like my lifeline. You know what I mean? Like I try not to bombard them all the time, but it was definitely on speed dial of like, Oh crap, I don't know what this means. I don't even know what they're talking about. And you know, and so you just have to have those people that you can definitely call, but yeah, the internet and old friends, you know, saved me time and time and time again. Something that I think is so special about the restaurant community, specifically what I've seen in uh, Omaha, is that it's it's very tight-knit. And a lot of people really support each other, even though in a, in a way they're like semi-competitors, but they're still very supportive. And when somebody opens up a new concept, you know, other restaurateurs will say, hey, this new thing just opened. It's awesome. Go check it out. Or I just had lunch here. It's really, really great. You should check it out. And it's great to just have that network of people already built up. So when you start your own thing, you have people to support you and push customers in your direction. You didn't have that no. when you first started here. Because you <laughs> mentioned you were kind of coming in, you know, not really knowing anyone, not knowing yeah. the city and everything. So in that circumstance, how do you get the word out about this this new coffee shop that's going to be doing different things? It's going to be something special, but... How do you get people in the door to show them that? You have to be good. <laughs> you can't, it's it's like those, you know, you you can't have a bad day in those circumstances. Like, especially in the beginning, like no matter how many hours I was working, it's like you had to show up every day and bring your A game, no matter who it was, no matter how ridiculous the request is. You know, I mean, that's the other deal is, you know, we only have chocolate and vanilla. You know, we don't have every syrup flavor there is. We don't have a blender. We don't have, there's so much that we don't do. Our menu is much smaller, you know, than a lot of the other shops in town. So, you know, what sets you apart from other companies, you know, like why should people come there? And so it was just one of those, you had to nail it every time. Those first impressions had to be incredible. So whether, you know, it was, um, smiling and making great small talk. But like at the end of the day, it's like your product had to be incredible. And so that was just a huge deal. I mean, I was working bar every day. I mean, even <laughs> now I still work bar five days a week. Um, so, I mean, you just had to show up and, and put your best foot forward and hopefully it landed with people, you know, and then hopefully you connected with the right people that were going to spread the gospel of archetype coffee and be like, Oh, that's the best cup of coffee I've had in Omaha. You know what I mean? You just had to have those experiences over and over and over again. And hopefully, 
you know, you would build that, that momentum that you needed to, to spur you on. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty stressful in the beginning. That first year is yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty stressful. Just especially like you said, not having a community. I didn't know anyone in the restaurant business or the bar industry. And so, um, yeah, it was nice to have, you know, Moolah coming on board and Script Town coming on board and Noah building Night Owl because there was a little bit of a community starting to form and, you know, having them be in the same stressing point. But, like, you know, we are the ones that were fueling them because there was nothing else there. So people would come and get coffee and, you know, them having that experience definitely helped get the word out even even quicker. Well, I love the the way that this conversation kind of turned because there was something that I want to talk about later, but I think it, it fits right into where we are right now in that you have done such a good job, I feel like, of empowering other people to kind of start their dreams or at least explore, you know, what that might, what the, what another career might look like and operate pop-ups at a night or, or night owl, excuse me, archetype. Yeah. Uh, such as nice roles. We've had Christina Lee on the show. Yeah. She's absolutely fantastic. She's operating out of your space now. I know you've done several other pop-ups, including, uh, Eek Newtly. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I think I am. Yeah. Okay, good. I was worried about that, <laughs> but I got it. So like clearly, you know, now that you've become established in Omaha, you kind of have, that power to raise up other people where, you know, maybe necessarily you didn't have that at the beginning. How important do you think is that? And is that like a responsibility that you feel to help others get their word out as well? Yeah, I think it's huge. Uh, our first pop-up was actually Ugly Duck. In the, oh, really? Yeah, in the first location, um, AJ Swanda, he had been talking, he'd wanted to, you know, do ramen. I was like, man, just do a pop-up here. I mean, that would have been, you know, 2000. 16 2017 you know i mean like there weren't a ton of pop-ups happening in omaha at that point you know and just from me traveling for coffee competitions and being all over the u.s just seeing it happening in other big cities like dude he's like how are we gonna do this i was like i don't know we'll figure it out so aj did his first two pop-ups in the first location and then that's what spurred on him doing the pop-ups in night owl and then you know eventually having his own restaurant but like for me it's just you know um be the change you want to see, you know, I mean, as, as cheesy as that sounds like, you know, Omaha isn't exactly where I'd like to see it as a city, you know? And so like, what can we do to help spur that on? And so, you know, any sort of person in, in Omaha that has a talent that wants to showcase it, you know, maybe not have the money or may not have the know how it's like, I've, I will always be like, Hey, let's come try it out. You know what I mean? Let's see what happens. You know, like how can I get you to where you want to be? And, hopefully that will spur our city on in those ways. And so, yeah, it's been an incredible opportunity to have a full commercial kitchen where, you know, Christina can come and, and knock it out of the park. And then, you know, I think we've, I don't even know how many pop-ups we've done now, you know, with different people that are wanting to get their concept out, but it's just excited, just it's exciting to be a part of that. You know, um, I think if you help other people's dreams come true, I mean, it's going to help your dreams come true as well, you know. So as, as much as we can just continue to spread that on, that's kind of the part, the goal of Archetype. That's awesome. Um, now, I want to get back to something we talked about pretty close to the top where we were, you know, talking about how you find these these beans and the, these small farms and these small yeah. roasters that, you know, aren't being mass produced, but they're – they have a really good product. They're just not this huge thing. So how do you find those places? Like, you know, there's a reason why 
uh, you know, these, these, these smaller places aren't just being I- invaded, you know, by the, by giant corporations as that's cause they're hard to find. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not easy. Like how do you find them? You have to go, <laughs> but how do you know where to go? Uh, so, you know, um, one of the importers that I work with is like a, a pretty small importer. It's name it's called Ocedo. Um, Kyle Bellinger, he actually owns a farm in Columbia. So um, we just met by happenstance in Atlanta and uh, a friend of a friend connected us. We're like, hey, you should probably know each other. Since then, you know, I've traveled all over Columbia with him. I've traveled all over Mexico with him. Um, And so basically what an importer does, they'll have someone that has like boots on the ground that is traveling around into those little communities and they're gathering samples and gathering information about the farms and they do like preliminary cuppings, you know, cupping is um, the way that we score coffee. So just like wine, you have a scale of one to a hundred cupping, we have a score from one to a hundred. And so to be considered specialty grade coffee, it has to score at least an 80. And so, you know, Kyle and these importers will have scouts that are going around into all those areas and um, cupping and trying things. And then if they find things, then that's when we would come in and, you know, visit the farms as well. So, I mean, you just have to have those people that are constantly scouring, you know, all over the countryside to find those places. Now, when when you have these scouts who are out there and they tell you about something and they say, "Hey, I, I think I've found something really special," yeah. you mentioned you have to go. Do you do you go every time? How much travel <laughs> do you do? Well, before COVID, we were getting ready to do a lot of travel. Last year, you know, I had some big goals. Um, you know, two years ago, we had finally, as a company, grown to a spot where I can justify spending the money to go travel. You know, as opposed to just cupping coffees from the importers. You know, we we finally, you know, bought from certain farms for two to three years. So I feel like, hey, we owe it to the farmer to show up. You know what I mean? Just be like, hey, we're committed. And so um, three years ago, we went to Columbia on our first trip, which is super exciting. We we buy uh, almost a whole lot from this group called La Mariah. And it's uh, a group of, you know, 10 to 20 farmers that are all under the age of 30. And they want to be coffee farmers. And so we we buy their community blend. So the blend has to score at least an 85. And so we buy all of that. And that's what our espresso base is. And then we had them separate out the lots that score above 85 and we buy them and pay them a premium for that coffee. And so um, we started we started by doing that. Then, you know, moving forward, uh, we finally started buying some coffee from Mexico. It's going to be our second year. So last year in March... Um, the third, uh, around March 13th, 14th, um, Kyle was already in Mexico and I was like, Kyle, this thing, COVID is happening, man. Like, are you watching it on the news? He's like, dude, I've been down in Mexico for a week. Things are great. You should come. So leading up to, you know, Trump's, you know, big press conference of being like, oh crap. So that was that Friday. I left on Saturday for Mexico and I was just, I was in contact and Kyle's like, dude, Mexico's great. It's great. So then, you know, we get down to Mexico at last March, um, and, everything just shut down. You know, we ended up actually calling the trip short just because, you know, if I was exposed to COVID, we don't bring it to the mountains of these farmers that obviously have zero exposure to it, you know? And so we ended up having to cut it short, but we had finally grown as a company where I could justify going to those. And so last year, the goal was to go to, um, we want to go to Mexico. We want to go back to Colombia. We're hoping to go to Ethiopia. Um, And then there was, feel like there's one other country that we're going to try to go to but so each year trying to grow 
you know, um, to a spot where we can travel to those farms and visit the ones that we've been buying from year after year. So what have you learned from those farmers, especially the ones that you've gained a lot of trust with and you come back to year after year? Man, there's salt of the earth people. You know what I mean? Like coffee, especially as a coffee farmer, it's hard to become rich as a coffee farmer, you know? So it's definitely like a labor of love that I think any, anybody that's doing farming is, it's like, you love the soil, you love, you love the lifestyle. And so I think it's just like the simplicity of life, you know, in, in America, I don't think westernizing the world is, is, (laughs) is the way to do things. You know what I mean? Like you see the quality of life, even in, you know, there's some farmers you go and they have dirt floors and it's still the cleanest thing you've ever been in. You know, like they take so much pride in, and where they live and the food that they're serving you. And like, I just think like the hospitality that I've experienced, the, um, the selflessness that I've experienced from these farmers is just like a true inspiration, um, to, to what we do. You know what I mean? Like for us to be able to give back to them. Um, cause it, I've, I've learned so much just like from hard work, um, it's it's a labor of love, you know, and so it's it's truly humbling, and I think it makes me want to take even further responsibility and ownership of how I represent them and telling their story. Um, it, it's yeah, it's a it's a humbling thing. Is there a little bit of pressure that comes with that? <laughs> uh, for me, yeah, for me, it's like that's what that's that's the cool side of coffee is that there's so many hands involved, right? So from the farmer who's planting a certain variety and growing it and nurturing it. Then you have pickers who have to pick ripe cherries in order for the product to be great, right, for all the sugars to develop. So making sure that the picker are picking only red ripe cherries, and then you have the mill who processes it. You've got to get those seeds out of the cherries, and you have to dry it. Then it has to go to the dry mill. Then it has to be shipped here. Then we have to roast it. I mean, there's so many hands. And then all of those things can be done really well. And then you can give it to a barista who may not care and just going to not be paying attention. So at any, you know, one of those stages along the lines, it can be screwed up. So I do feel a very deep responsibility of representing, you know, that farmer and the product that they've put their blood, sweat and tears in. So I try to honor it all the way through and try to communicate that to our baristas you know what I mean? Like if you waste that shot of coffee, if you waste, I mean, that's, I always say like, that's farmer's tears. You know I mean? I'm, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it really is, you know? So I do have a deep sense of responsibility of, yeah, honoring, honoring them and their hard work. So when you're going through the hiring process, how do you identify people who feel maybe not to the extent that you do, but they have similar feelings the way that you do where they have, you know, they understand that the product has to be honored. It's hard. I mean, hiring is the hardest part. I think employees are, are the hardest. Yeah. The hardest part It's it's still a learning curve, you know? Cause I mean, for coffee, it's like, do they have the personality, you know what I mean? To interact with customers is that, but then can they also execute on the coffee side of things, which is a skill, you know? And so I don't have a formula. <laughs> you think, yeah, I've, I mean, I've talked with my wife, you know, about, you know, she has, you know, she's a PhD in psychology, right? So you, I'm like, can't you develop some sort of test that I can give to employees to figure out? I mean, it's just a, it's a very tricky thing, you know, and it's kind of one of those, like, until you get someone there working with you, 
you know, whether they, they get it or not, you know, it's a tricky, tricky dance. And hopefully if they don't have it, can you inspire that? You know I mean? That's the other side of it. Hopefully you can inspire it. And if not, you know what they say, they say, you know, higher, slow, fire, quick, you know what I mean? Especially in an organization that is, you know, um, cultivating a community, but then also uh, executing on representing farmers. Like it's just a very important thing. Mm-hmm. Now, going back real quick to the to the origins of Archetype, you mentioned that first year, you know, there, there were some ups and downs and there were some rough times. It wasn't always easy. At what point did you start to feel like people are recognizing that Archetype is something special? Like you had a steady customer base. It wasn't like, are we going to make it? But it was more just like, okay, we have a solid ground here that we can put our feet on. I mean, in a small business, do you ever feel that way? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. That's a I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, is there anything secure? I mean, th- these are questions that I ask myself. Uh, I mean, after the second year, there was a lot of traction, you know, where I didn't feel like I had to be there every day, even though I was probably still there every day, you know. Uh, yeah, after the second year, uh, it's I feel like we finally had some momentum, and I had employees that understood, you know, what we were doing, what we were about, and so. But even still, you know, even with this third location, or I mean, working on the third location, uh, the second location, you know, I st- I'm still there almost every day, you know, just making sure that things are running like they should, and we're executing at the level that I want it to be. You know, it's I don't know that you ever feel comfortable. I think if you feel it's a fine line, right, between, like, feeling contentment and complacency. You know what I mean? Like, it's a fine line of also not being content and just, like, you know, there's a ditch on both of those. those, And so it's finding that middle ground where, yeah, I mean, I, we're, very, we're in a great place as a company, and I feel secure, but, like, I'm always pushing. Yeah, and I think that that's a very healthy way to approach yeah. it. Like the first moment where you start feeling fat and happy is where things start yeah. to go downhill. So you always want to be be chasing. I think one of the clear signs that you are doing something right is when you open a second location, which oh, is sure. what you guys are able to do in 2018. You opened, as you mentioned, the location down in Little Bohemia. How did you know that it was the right time to do that? I don't think it's... Time, so, I mean, I was approached about that location uh, probably a couple years before that even. Um, And just at that time, PJ Morgan and and their team, they only had the three buildings. Uh, So our building where Beercade is now and um, the theater. And so I said no for over a year. It was just like, no, like just because, I mean, when I started out in business, I guess I had some goals, just had some things, but I wasn't, I'm not pursuing growth for growth. You know, I mean, I got, I mean, I get approached every month like, Hey, listen, I've got the perfect spot for you. I've got this. It's like that. That's not how you continue to operate at a high, you know, level for me. And it's like, I don't want to water down the brand, you know, quality is got to be first. And so I said no for a year. And it was when I also didn't feel like they had enough land mass to change 13th street into make it an actual district and so once they bought little bohemia you know the bookshop and then the two houses it's like now okay we have a little bit of a critical mass where i felt like that's enough real estate that you could change that little district and we could support each other and hopefully grow and so um Noah and I were actually planning on going where, you know, Noah from Night Owl, we were planning on going to wh- where Beer Kid is. We just wanted to split it 50-50. I didn't want a big location. 
Um, and then, you know, another restaurant tour at that time, it kind of swooped in and signed a lease. And so it was like, well, crap, now what are we going to do? And then I think Noah ended up doing like buying a house and he's like, man, I'm out for a minute. And I'm like, ah, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, and we were just at a growth point where like the roastery needed more space, the kitchen needed more space. And so, yeah, it was just roll the dice again. So, you know, I felt, I felt like the, the district would turn around. And so I, I took a risk on it. Mm-hmm. Now, as this conversation has shown, like you're someone who's very clearly so passionate about delivering that great experience to every customer. But when you have two locations and even, you know, you said you're as dedicated as ever you're in little Bohemia almost every day. <laughs> yeah. But if you're in little Bohemia, then you can't be in Blackstone. You can't yeah. be in the original location. So what kind of processes or systems did you have to put in place to ensure that the quality that you are proud of and the product that you love putting in front of people was still being presented to them, even though you're not the one doing it? Uh, I mean, you have to have the staff that you trust that are going to follow your standards and your protocols, you know? So, I mean, I, we run a really lean, lean machine, you know, uh, we don't have a ton of staff. Uh, most coffee shops probably have, you know, a third more staff than we do running the same amount of hours. And so it's just having those people that you trust that are going to adhere to what you've set forth and they buy into the vision and they believe in it and they want to support it just as much as you do. And so, I mean, that's just the main thing. We've got some great baristas that really care and not only about the community, but they care about the product as well. And some baristas might care about the community more than they do about the coffee, but they still know what the standard is. And, and for the most part, you know, they adhere to it and continue to, to support it. Okay. Got two more questions here as we wind down. These yeah. are things that I like to ask to most chefs and restaurateurs, but now I'm really interested to get <laughs> like the coffee side of sure. it. Um, so what is, what is one thing that you think people who visit coffee shops don't understand about the business that you wish that they did? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, we're, man, that's a tough question. I think in, in the Instagram, Facebook, um, I mean, you can list all of them, you know, uh, TikTok, whatever world that we live in. It's like you can walk into a coffee shop that is, you know, looks beautiful, has the best machinery, their Instagram, they've got a certain number of followers, you know, and all signs point to like, this is going to be an amazing experience. But at the end of the day, the product can still be pretty um, not great. And so I think that's a weird world that we live in. You know, I have a friend that's, um, he has an espresso machine at home. He's, he's definitely a super coffee geek. And he's like, man, he's like used to, he's like, I could do my research and I could find out like where I should go. He's like, but now I know to only call you and go where you say to go. It's just a weird world that we live in. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't, every shop looks beautiful now, you know, I mean, restaurants look beautiful where, you know, before the internet or before, you know, I think social media, you know, it was really, I felt like restaurants are more of a passion play or coffee shops are more of a passion play where like you had to travel, you had to go do your own research. You had to go experience it. Then you had to take that information, come home, work on it for a year, developing that concept where like now it's like, Oh, that concept's cool. That's not in Omaha. We should do that. You know, Oh, that concept's cool. We should do that. You know what I mean? Where it's not necessarily a passion play where as it is a money grab, you know? And so I think that's like the hardest part in, in the, 
the era that we live in just because everything is we have access to all the time. And so you don't have to generate it and it doesn't have to be a passion play. It could definitely be a money grab, you know. So how, it's easy to make things a money grab. How, how yeah. do you how do you resist that and stay true to making it a passion play like you said? Uh I mean, everyone at the end of the day wants to get paid. You know what I mean? It's like, I want to be successful, you know I mean? But for me, money is a tool, you know, and that's what I always try to keep in front of me is like money is a tool. It's not about gaining more things. It's about how can we empower more people, you know, to have a better quality of life as well. And so for me, it's like once when coffee becomes is no longer a passion you play and it's more about money, then I should step back. I should, I should step away from it and I should do something else. You know what I mean? I think, you know, it's easy to walk into a restaurant or at least have an experience and know whether the restaurant or the, the bar or the, you know, coffee shop has a soul. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what makes soul food, soul food, you know, it's like you're putting your everything into it. You know what I mean? Like you can tell there's love and there's blood, sweat and tear going into that. And sometimes you taste that, sometimes you feel that, or sometimes hopefully the experience, you f- it's both, you know what I mean? And so for me, it's like just being true to that, you know, it's, you have to have a high level of integrity that you're going to stick to, you know, and if, if you let that slide, you know, I think to some extent, not everyone will know that, you know what I mean? But hopefully those that you've surrounded your close company will be like, Hey bro, like what's going on? You know? And so, I mean, yeah, I think it's just being true and, and keeping a high level of integrity. All right. And to, to end things on a positive note, what is your favorite part of being part of the coffee industry? Oh, I mean, I mean, honestly, like community, it, it's, it's incredible that like coffee connects the world now, you know, um, I have a love hate relationship with, with social media and the internet, but like with even like Instagram, like you're connecting with people all across the ocean, you know, uh, on the same project. I mean the same, um, product, you know? And so I think that's what I love about it is just the, the community that it brings, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible that a simple beverage like that unites so many people. And so I, I love that more than anything. That's amazing. Well, I, I thank you so much, Isaiah, for, yeah. for coming on today. And not only, you know, talking about great coffee and everything, I feel like we learned some really good life lessons. Like <laughs> if, if this whole coffee thing doesn't work out, maybe life coach could be like an interesting know. side hustle. Or I don't something. know about that. Don't <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I do sincerely yeah, appreciate your th- time. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And Omaha, as always, thank you for eating with me. A Huda Media Production.